So chapter 3, verse 10. So the crowd were asking him, what then should we do? Now this is good because it shows that they're being convicted. It shows that they realize something is happening. And they then respond, what must we do? And John answered them, the person who has two tunics must share with the person who has none. And the person who has food must do likewise. Now, basically what he's calling them to do is take care of the less fortunate. If you have an abundance, now notice he didn't say, if you have two cloaks, you better feel guilty and give them both away. Okay, this isn't that book of Radical where he's like, sell everybody, everything and live in a cardboard box and give it to everybody else. It's like, well, then you have nothing else to offer people. The idea is you give out of your abundance. God has never asked people in a wholesale general way to give up everything. There are very specific people that he's come to and said that to them specifically. But this has not been a holistic command that God has given to people is to give up everything. But what he has done is says to give up the abundance that is greater than what the majority of the people around you who are in need. Not the majority of the neighbors in your neighborhood who have lots of stuff too. But the majority of the people, because that's what we already do, is like, well, according to my neighbors, I'm pretty poor. I only have three cars. And, <laughs> and I only have four iPhones. But no, compared to the vast majority of people that are in your neighborhood, the nation, or the world, and that kind of stuff. And, and this is what will become a big theme later, where the, the teacher of the law will say, well, then who's my neighbor? And that's the question that Jesus is going to answer. What does he mean by, if somebody is in need, give to them? And Jesus is going to answer who that neighbor really truly is later on. And it has multiple layers of meaning to that. Take care of them. Take care of the people in need. Start with their physical needs, which will then open the door for their spiritual needs. And so you're to take care of them. Which is a very simple, very practical advice. You're like, oh, that, that's it? But it's a very challenging, very difficult one when you're used to all that stuff. So the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he told them, Collect no more than you're required to do. Then, now, notice that. He doesn't say, Stop collecting money. He doesn't even say, You traitors, you've lined yourself with Rome and collected for them. The Pharisee would expect him to say, like, get away from Rome. You're a traitor. Repent and leave your job completely. But he just says, don't collect any more than what you're supposed to. Now, remember, the tax collector didn't get paid by Rome. He basically collected taxes, and then he took a commission off of that. So whatever his percentage is, which is not uncommon. Um, if you have somebody do um, your financial insurance and their, um, your mutual funds and all that kind of stuff, um, some of them charge you a flat fee. But some just say, I'll just take 1% of whatever you earn or something like that. And, and we're okay with that because we realize they have to get paid. The problem is the tax collector, when you have Roman soldiers standing behind you, and they're known to crucify people, you can get really brave and think, well, I'm going to take 20%. And you're taking 20% from people who really are having a hard time paying the 1%. And that's the problem. It's not that they're collecting taxes. It's not even that they're collecting a fee because notice he just says, don't collect more than what you need to. And so what he's making very clear is don't gouge the people. So the first command is when you see people in need, then, then give to them out of your abundance. The, the second idea is that 
when there are people in need or you're, you're taking things from them, charging them fees or, or whatever, then don't gouge them. Don't use them to make yourself more wealthy. And so don't hold on to your wealth to the exclusion of other people and don't use yourself, don't use other people to make yourself exorbitantly wealthy in both cases at the expense of other people, at the expense of other people. Then some soldiers. Now, we don't know if these are, we automatically think like Roman soldiers, but you have to remember that the, the priesthood had soldiers too. And there were temple soldiers that regulate things. So we don't know exactly what kind of soldiers these are. But they also asked them, and as for us, what should we do? And he told them, take money from no one by violence or by false accusations and be content with your pay. The other thing that soldiers would do is they were notorious for this too because they're a soldier. And it's kind of like, wow, people are afraid of me. And if they go against me, even if I'm not a Roman soldier, I can just go to the Romans and say, hey, they're opposing the authority that you gave me. And you could shake people down for more money. Or Jesus will mention later, they'll just, they'll just, they're just like tired of carrying their packs. They give it to you and they say, march with me and carry it. The idea is that they just used people whenever they wanted because they had the gun, so to speak, and the other person didn't. And what John is saying is, don't. Don't. You're called to protect people. You're called to punish those who violate the law, not to make yourself profitable. You're getting paid. And, and, and what you're getting paid is fair. And if it's not, then God will take care of you. He'll either give you a raise or he'll bring money from somewhere else. Now, obviously, John's not saying all that, but we know that's how God works all throughout the Bible. The idea is look to the needs of other people and do not exploit and oppress other people for your own gain. You should not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. These are all commands all throughout the first dozen. These are not shocking. They're, they're difficult to put into practice when you're in a culture of materialism and wealth and abundance and power, but they're not shocking to hear that this is what God has expected of us. But what John is saying is that knowing it is not enough. Repenting and sacrificially changing your life, that is what God is requiring. That is what God is requiring. And so this is what he's called them to. But this is also a great layup, so to speak, or foreshadow for chapter 4, where Jesus is going to read from Isaiah that he's come for the poor, he's come for the oppressed, and all that kind of stuff, which is going to become the, 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 the prophecy that's going to shape all the Gospel of Luke. All the Gospel of Luke is going to flow out of that passage when we get to chapter 4. So even before we've gotten to that quotation, Luke is already preparing you for that idea that's going to be elaborated by Jesus. While the people were filled, verse 15, with anticipation, and they all wondered whether perhaps John could be the Christ. So though there are some who don't like him, there are some who are like, could this be it? I mean, the Christ, the Messiah. He sounds like a prophet. He's talking like a prophet. The, the stars are aligning on him as a prophet, so to speak. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I am is coming. And I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out the threshing floor and, no, and to gather the wheat into the storehouses. But the chaff he will burn up in the extinguishable fire. They ask him, are you the Messiah? 
Remember we talked about this. In Luke's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, he comes as the new John, or the new Elijah. In Luke's Gospel, he is the one who denies to be that one. And so he basically says no. But he says, my whole purpose is to prepare the way for the one who is coming. I baptize you with water. All water can do is ritually cleanse you. All it can do is reflect that you say that you belong to God and you're repenting of your sins. But obviously, that doesn't even mean that anything legitimate has actually happened in your heart. Because anybody can go under the water. And it doesn't say anything about what's truly happening in the heart. All I can do is get you to see your need for repentance. All I can do is externally help you repent. Just like the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was good, but all the Mosaic Law could do was become a mirror to your life and reflect that you are a sinner, convict you of your sin, and help you externally know how to repent and what it meant to live in a better life after repentance. But it had no power to actually make you want to or to be able to, nor to actually change your heart in any kind of real way. And this is why nobody's heart has been circumcised yet, according to Deuteronomy 3 and 10 and Jeremiah 31. And so what John is saying is, that's all I can do. That's all I can do. I am the continuation of the Mosaic Law. But there is one who is coming, who doesn't just baptize with water, because Jesus will continue that ministry on, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire implying that there's something way deeper and way more external that is happening here. Many people debate, scholars, whether the being baptized with Holy Spirit and fire are referring to two separate things in God's way of thinking, or they're synonymous in a repetition kind of a way, referring to one thing. Those who see these as two separate things see the Holy Spirit, obviously, as salvation, and the fire is the judgment of Jesus. So they see this as the idea that God, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit, which will give salvation to those who accept him, and those who repent. And that, But then after that, for everyone who refuses to repent, he's going to come in fire, and he's going to judge them and destroy them in this judgment. And that totally makes sense. Because all throughout the First Testament and the Second Testament, fire is constantly alluded to as the judgment of God. And in fact, John just got done saying that every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to cut down and throw it into the fire. And he's going to then say that again, too, right after this context. So people will point to the fact that just right before this and immediately after this in the same paragraph, John refers to fire as judgment. Others see it as synonymous as the entire thing, that the Holy Spirit is the fire. And that makes sense, too, because Jesus, God in the First Testament came as the fire. And though that did represent judgment as he judged Egypt and sometimes judged Israel in the wilderness, it also represented his presence. He is the light of God. And the Holy Spirit is going to be described as a pillars of fire, tongues of fire, coming into the disciples and the followers of Christ at Pentecost in chapter 2. So the thing is that it really could go either way. And there's no consensus among scholars or Christians of what these two things should actually be. Whether it's two separate things or one thing. Most scholars 
go to the idea that it's probably supposed to be seen as synonymous. And I'm going to, because grammatically speaking, these two things are governed by the same preposition. The fact that they're linked together by the same preposition suggests that they're, they're linked, they're synonymous in that kind of a way. So, but obviously that's not an absolute ironclad reason for why you should see this as one or two. Either way, it doesn't matter, in my opinion, because the scriptures make it very clear that both things are going to happen. That fire is used as, and in some ways I could see it as being one thing and two things, both. Because the Bible makes it very clear that when the Holy Spirit comes in, it is a fire judgment. And that the, the, the Peter makes it very clear that everyone goes through the fire. And you, because you're all refined, like gold in the fire. And the fire will either come into your life, the Holy Spirit, and it will burn up the sin, which we call uh, redemption and sanctification and glorification. And it will burn all that up and leave only that which is just pure, the gold, the, the character of God, the image of God that will go. Or it will burn you up completely in judgment if you have no Holy Spirit and you have no life. And so either way, the Holy Spirit is judging you and convicting you. And then if you're a believer, that gets dealt with. And if you're not, then it becomes your judgment. So I can see it going either way in that kind of a sense. But either way, the Holy Spirit is seen as the one who is making this all happen. And the Holy Spirit is seen as something that is new that we have not seen before. Because what Jesus is going to do is it's not going to be an external thing, a motivation, external ritual anymore, like animal sacrifices and water baptisms and, and tabernacles and temples and that kind of stuff. But for the first time, the Holy Spirit is going to come into you. And remember, that never happened in the first test. It would come upon you for temporary purposes, but it's never indwelled you. And so this is Joel chapter 2, that on that day I will pour my spirit on my people, and they will know God. Jeremiah 31, 31. On that day I will write my law on their hearts, and everyone will know God, and they will no longer need somebody to help them know God's will or to be intimately related to God in any kind of way. They will all know me from the least to the greatest in all kinds of ways. And then Jeremiah connects that to the circumcision of the heart. And of course, this all gets connected to Pentecost. So either way, the point that John is ultimately making is that the one who is coming is not going to be an external ritual or external motivator. It's going to be an internal change. And for the first time ever, you're going to have the desire and the ability to truly repent maintain that repentance, and truly become the image of God. That's what I'm talking about. That is what is coming. That's what I'm preparing. And my baptism is special, not in the sense that the Jews never baptized before, because the Jews did baptize. He's not brand new like baptism. God commanded it in Leviticus. They had these things called mikvahs in the First Testament. And they, every time they would go into a celebration or a festival or they would go into the tabernacle or a temple for a sacrifice, they would dunk themselves and immerse themselves into the water. And then when they were done, when they had any kind of skin disease or bleeding of any kind of a way, when that was all finished or during the time, they would dunk themselves and bathe themselves all laid out in Leviticus. This is something they did on a regular, daily, weekly, monthly basis over and over and over again. What John's baptism is unique is that he's basically saying this is the last baptism. This is the one that's going to represent the last, the baptism to end all baptisms. 
And not only that, he's marrying it with the Greek and Roman idea of baptism, where also represented initiation into allegiance to your God. And so the Romans, they would say, I'm going to pledge my absolute total allegiance to this God, and I'm going to demonstrate that through baptism. And they would actually get an ox and put it over a pit, and then they would get in the pit, and they'd cut the belly of the ox open, and they would get bathed in the blood of the ox as their initiation. And so John is now then turning this into initiation, but this is not an initiation of your ability or your works, because that was after you proved your worthiness, but initiation of your repentance. Your repentance is your worthiness. And this is, so he's marrying this from the cleansing of sins, but also to marrying it to an allegiance and and an entrance into a new kingdom. And that these two ideas are going to end all other washings, all other sacrifices. And that's the idea that's being communicated here. This person is so great that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Now, in the ancient world, sandals were the nastiest thing. They walked through the dirt. They got sweaty. They walked through the dirt. They walked through animal feces and all that kind of stuff. And it was removing the sandals and washing the feet of people was reserved for the lowliest of slaves. I mean, there were even slaves that that was, they were above that. So we're talking about the lowest. So John who's considered the greatest prophet according to in the many, many, many years, according to the prophets. John, who is on the divine council of Yahweh. John, who everybody adheres to and obeys. And if you don't, then you're under the judgment of God, is saying the one who is coming, I'm a gnat, an ant in his presence. I am so unworthy to even come to his own feet and bow down to him in submission. And so this is elevating Jesus up to a prophethood that is far superior than anything the Israelites have ever seen of or even thought of. And obviously the only thing even gets close to that is the Messiah. The Messiah. And when this Messiah is coming, don't think he's just coming to let little children sit on his lap and and to accept tax collectors and prostitutes and this Jesus is my friend and buddy buddy and no, he's coming with a winnowing fork, okay? Like the Amish, okay? Now, he's coming with a winnowing fork. Now, if you, so basically, you have the grain, and when they cut down the grain, the stalks, you would cut the heads off, and the heads were mixed with chaff, the little fuzzies that come off, like cat whiskers that come off. And that was all clung together, and you don't want the chaff. And so what you would do is you would, you would throw your grain with the chaff onto the floor, a threshing floor, a stone floor, and you would take either a winnowing fork, a pitchfork, and you would like shovel it up and throw it up or beat it or that kind of stuff, and it would break the grain heads up. And so they would break down the little kernels, and it would break the chaff off of it and separate everything. And so then it becomes this loose grain that you can put your hands through. Or sometimes they would tie a piece of wood to oxen and the oxen would walk over it and drag the wood to break it all up. Either way, you're beating it and abusing it. And then what you do is you get a basket and you fill it all up because you don't want that chaff because if you bake bread with chaff and it, it's like having a bunch of cat whiskers in your bread. And so you would take the, the, the grain, you throw up in the air, not the basket, just the grain. And the wind comes by, and the grain is heavier than the chaff, so the grain comes back in the basket, and the chaff gets blown away. And when you have this pile of grain, then you can use that to bake flour, or bake flour. You can grind that into flour and use it to bake bread. 
And then, then you had this piled chaff, and the chaff was only good for one thing, and that was starting fires. And so he says the Messiah, he's coming with the fork of judgment, and he's going to beat you and thrash you. And when he's done, you're either grain or chaff. And this is what Jesus meant by, I'm going to separate the green from the chaff. And he's going to take the chaff that's left over, those who did not repent, he's going to burn them in the fire. And not just any old fire, an unquenchable fire, a fire that never goes out. And that's judgment. Now, don't think literal fire, but just think metaphor for a judgment that can never be atoned for in your own works because of your lack of repentance and a judgment that will keep you separated from God for all eternity. That's the idea. Obviously hell. And this is obviously the wrath of God, even in the body of the lovable salvation redeeming Jesus Christ. And so this is the picture that John paints. Knows his picture of the Messiah is mostly of judgment. Mostly of judgment. Verse 18. And in this way, with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. The good news is judgment. The axe is at the tree, you vipers. You're going to be burned up, right? That's the good news. Unless you repent. Yeah, that, that, that little small print there. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of the Herodians, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil deeds that he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now, this comes much later, obviously. Herod was a scumbag. Herod had multiple wives, and he had lots of children. And he was known for like, anytime he thought one of his wives or his children were trying to take the throne before he appointed to them, he would just kill them. One time he actually like literally a swimming pool party in Jericho. Um, he died in excess of 400 pounds. And one time he was in Jericho at a swimming pool and he thought his son was trying to take the throne too early and trying to plot against him. We don't know whether he really was or not. So he sat on his son in the swimming pool and drowned him. And Octavian, who actually, Augustus, who actually kind of like Herod, they were pen pals. And um, he basically, like in a joking at a party when he was drunk one time, joked like it's better to be Herod's pig than his son because Herod was not really Jewish. He was half Jewish, half um, Edomite, but he really wanted the Jews to like him. So he built a lot of things for the Jews and not like like him because he had a low self-esteem complex. They probably did because that's normal for powerful people. Um, but because he didn't want them to rebel, and if they didn't rebel, then he didn't have to squash them. If he didn't have to squash them, then he could eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Dealing with that just gets in the way. So he wanted them to like him, so he built a lot of things for them. But he also adhered to kosher laws, and he refused to eat pigs. But he had no problem killing his sons. He sacked a lot of wives for this and that kind of stuff. And he had... Would, so on this particular occasion, he actually divorced one of his wives, which John did not think that divorce was okay in, in the adherence of the Bible. And then he, um, he married a near-blood relative, like a cousin or a niece. It's hard to figure out. And so that obviously violates the Levitical law on the divorce. It violates the Levitical law on the incest and all that kind of stuff. So he just outwardly condemned him, which is what the prophets do, especially their leaders. And the, the, the more public and the more of a leader they are and the more they rebel against the law, then the greater the mockery and the greater the, the judgment against them in order to show them for the buffoons that they are. 
and hopes that maybe they'll repent, and also most likely in the hopes that the people will realize that they're buffoons and not emulate the leader and act like them. He rebuked him. So this is what's going to lead to his death. And once again, this foreshadows what's going to Christ. It's important to understand that when Jesus comes along, his baptism is not seen as an alternate baptism. His baptism is seen as a continuation. He's not doing something different that opposes or a different path than John. He's continuing what John has done because without the Levitical baptisms that point to the Holy Spirit fire baptisms, then you don't even know what the Holy Spirit baptism is even meant to do. And so this isn't a new plan B. This is the plan A that's happening. So John's baptism is the blueprint, and Jesus is going to then build it and make it happen. And that's the idea 